middle of a mental health crisis, no matter how large or small, you need help immediately. Under the current response system, that help often involves law enforcement or hospital emergency rooms, neither of which can meet everyone's needs. Organizations around Alaska are working to change that by creating a spectrum of new mental health treatment options with a focus on supporting people in the community. We'll explore these issues and more today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. People who smoke or have smoking-related conditions like lung and heart disease are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. Not using any tobacco or e-cigarette products is one of the best ways to keep your immune system strong, ready to fight all kinds of viruses. If you decide to quit, help is available. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or text READY to 200-400 to get the support you need to quit for good. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. You're listening to Talk of Alaska. I'm Ann Hillman. Today, we're talking about the evolution of mental health crisis response systems in Alaska and how to better meet the needs of the entire community. First, we'll talk about what the response system looks like now, and then we'll incorporate We'll talk about how the Alaska Mental Health Trust local governments and organizations across the state are working together to ensure that people get the help they really need. They're creating a new system that links together different types of short-term and long-term support. Here with us to discuss these issues are Summer LaFay, head of the psychiatric ER at Providence Hospital in Anchorage, and Steve Williams, chief operating officer at the Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority. You can also join our discussion. Unfortunately, phone lines are down right now. However, we are accepting emails at talk at alaskapublic.org. Again, that's talk at alaskapublic.org. Also, in case you need other types of support while listening to this conversation, because conversations around mental health can trigger a lot of different emotions and memories, or it might inspire you to seek help for you or someone else you know. So, Jot down a pen or grab a pen and jot down the care line number. So the care line's a 24-7 crisis line number here in Alaska with folks who are trained to support you. And their number is 877-266-4357. That's 877-266-HELP. And again, Talk of Alaska phone lines are down, but you can still email us at talk at alaskapublic.org. So... Summer and Steve, thank you both so, so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you both. Um, I was hoping to start out this conversation by helping people understand the landscape of mental health crisis response that exists now in Alaska. Um, and before we get into that, I was hoping you could each tell us a little bit more about who you are and what role you play in this in this wider ecosystem. So, Summer, who are you? What do you do? What did you do before what you do now? Good morning. Uh, thank you for thank you for having me here to have this an important discussion today. My name is Summer LaFay. I am the manager at the psychiatric emergency room at Providence Hospital in Anchorage. I am a clinical social worker and I'm a behavior analyst. Um, my previous experience um, 
as a social worker and, and, and as a clinician in Alaska kind of encompasses a broad scope of practice. Um, I started um, pretty early working with people experiencing homelessness and long-term substance use, um, working in an outreach um, peer support agency called the Alaska Mental Health Consumer Web um, as their clinical lead. Um, I also worked for a while with the Mental Health Trust Authority as a technical assistant to support the develop of, development of some peer support um, agencies in the state. After that, um, I did some direct, direct clinical work um, with people that um, needed support at the Center for Psychosocial Development at the University of Alaska um, Center for Human Development, which is a center for excellence for disabilities, um, supporting people across the spectrum of, of care needs in, in Alaska. Um, I worked there for about 10 years, and I also worked um, with a group of folks from the state called the Complex Behavioral Collaborative, which is a line of funding that works on keeping people um, in the community, supporting them by helping caregivers and clinicians and um, schools and support providers across the different domains of care, gain skills to work with people that sometimes um, have experienced really serious presentations of mental illness and other co-occurring disorders. Um, in addition to that, I, I've been in Alaska about 21 years. Um, I'm a mom of two college-age um, sons, and I am a person that identifies as having lived experience. Uh, I think that's a, a long enough introduction. <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely um, lets us know that you have this huge scope of experience and, and working with people. Um, and can relate to people from your own experience, which is huge. Um, before we jump to Steve, I'd love it somewhere if you can explain to folks who don't know what it means to be a peer or what it means to work to train with pe train people to be peers in working in the mental health world. I think the experience of the label peer is very different depending on the person. Mm -hmm. um, I use the term lived experience, which means I think. Um, my personal definition is that I bring to my practice the contingencies in my life that um, brought me in contact with the mental health system and the system of care for people with vulnerabilities. So, for example, my identification as a peer is that I am um, a product of the child protection system in California. I was adopted at birth. And I am aware that um, one of the contingencies in place when I was adopted is that I was prenatally exposed to alcohol. I think that context is important and I self-identify as someone that brokers services for other people that may have that experience across the continuum of what people might, might consider different a different perspective. So for example, let me be clear, people don't really think of people running psychiatric emergency rooms um, having experienced prenatal exposure, um, but that's really in play in my clinical practice. Um, and I treat people every day that might have a similar life experience. So I bring that to my, to my work. Um, 
In addition, other folks that may identify as peer may have experienced um, long-term substance use and be in recovery or um, um, experienced uh, bouts of mental illness and recovery. And they bring unique uh, life experience that can help people navigate mm -hmm. their path in um, getting help and working towards wellness. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. Steve, who are you? What do you do? Why do you care about this? Good morning, Anne. Thanks for uh, uh, inviting Summer and myself. And I know that there was a third uh, individual that you uh, invited that kind of speak would be able to speak to what you and Summer were just talking about in terms of peers, but uh, is unable to join us this morning. Yeah, unfortunately, he was under uh, the weather. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, my experience, I've, I've lived in Alaska for close to 30 years. I moved up from the D.C. area in 1992, uh, and I came up and I started working immediately as a volunteer in, in Anchorage's community behavioral health system. I worked at the Ark of Anchorage for several years. Um, and then later on uh, in my life, uh, shortly uh, in the early 2000s, I started working for the Alaska court system and started working with the Anchorage-based uh, mental health court and was a, a case manager and then the coordinator of the court. Um, so this intersection of uh, behavioral health crisis, uh, it happens in many places in our communities and individuals in crisis ultimately uh, often get diverted to different places. Some of them, the emergency rooms, some of them, the Providence Psychiatric uh, emergency room that where summer works sometimes they end up in our correctional system uh, and sometimes they don't get the care they need in the community and are often struggling to make those connections to the supports and the services they need so uh, i've seen that both as a direct care um, professional uh, i've seen it as a friend um, with uh, individuals in our community who've experienced these types of crises, these health conditions. Uh, and then I've been working to try to work with our, our partners in the community, at the state level, with the tribal health system and our local governments to um, really kind of transform the way we deliver our, our crisis care in, in the state uh, at a policy level and at a systems level. Uh, and that's really um, the work that the trust uh, is currently engaged in uh, and has been engaged in since around 2019, uh, is really looking at how is our crisis continuum of care uh, structured right now? Uh, and what can we do to transform that into the next evolution uh, of improved care for individuals experiencing these health conditions? So that's where I'd, I'd really like to start, is helping people understand what it's like right now when people experience a mental health crisis. And even taking it back one slight step of what does it mean to be in crisis? I feel like that is, it's such a broad spectrum of experiences. Um, so I wondered if both of you could kind of talk about what does mental health crisis mean or look like? Well, um, I, maybe I can start a little bit and then um, Summer can, can add to what I'm going to say. I think uh, the first thing to recognize is that um, people who experience a behavioral health crisis, uh, some sort of mental health condition, uh, 
you know, the way that that crisis presents is very individual. And so it can look different depending on um, the person that has that particular health condition. And then the response to that can look very different depending on where the individual is in our state. You know, the response that exists in Anchorage is going to be different than the uh, response that might exist in Bethel or a smaller uh, community off the road system. And um, there are some pieces of the system that we have in place to try to respond to that in, in all of those types of um, locales. We have a, as you mentioned at the very beginning of the, the show, Anne, we have a care line that people can access 24 seven if they feel like they need to reach out and seek help because they're not sure uh, that they're safe or that they have a, a loved one that they're concerned about that might be safe. Uh, might not be safe. So, um, in, in, you know, the more urban uh, communities, we have community behavioral health providers, we have hospital emergency rooms, we have uh, other healthcare facilities that uh, should be accessible to someone in crisis, uh, but they may not be depending on the circumstances of that particular uh, service provider. Uh, Summers, are, how would you add to, to that? I guess what I think about is the definition of crisis is for everyone. It is not having what you need to be able to live, fully live. Um, and that increases with stressors. And so when I think about a person experiencing mental illness or developmental difference or um, maybe having some substance related um, behaviors that exacerbate that, it increases the stressors and increasing the stressors when the playing field is, compl is complicated by those kinds of life circumstances, um, cr it creates traumatic stress. And so I feel like crisis is often the expression of these stressors all coming together um, traumatically combining and this person rising to the level that they need more support than they're able to access in their home environment. And um, kind of that's my my quick definition of it. And that makes a lot of sense from a lot of a lot of the folks that I've spoken to with different lived experiences and people working in the field, like crisis happens not just because of one's individual circumstances, but also because of all these community factors that come together. And and it's also so dependent on the environment that they're living in and social determinants of mental health. And so crisis looks so different and, and needs people need to respond to it so differently. Um, and so one of the ways that people, at least in urban areas, have... Um, one of the resources people in urban areas have to deal with crisis right now is to going to going to a place like a hospital emergency department. So, Summer, I'd love for you to explain kind of what happens if a person goes to an emergency department, and then what happens if a person goes to a emergency department that's focused on psychiatric issues like you run. Like, what a what do those both look like? What is that experience like? Well, there's lots of different ways to come to an emergency department. So you might come via um, an escort from the police department or the troopers 
on a need for emergency detention, which means something's happened where um, interveners have determined that you are at risk um, for um, self-injury or at risk for injuring someone else or gravely disabled. And so that might look a certain way. That might look like a police officer bringing you to an emergency room. Um, it could be here at Providence or at the Alaska Native Medical Center or at Alaska Regional. And then you would be escorted in by the police. Um, you might also come by ambulance in that situation. Um, you might walk into the emergency room here at Providence and then you would be assessed in the triage department and they would do a suicide risk assessment. They would begin a screening um, to determine whether you need a full assessment and then you dependent on whether or not um, there were beds in the psychiatric emergency room, you might be admitted to the emergency department. Um, from there, there's a process for folks getting fully assessed for um, risk of self-injury or harm to others, um, a safety planning process, and then a full um, observation period to determine the best interventions necessary um, and to meet the person where they're at. Um, given the resources that we have available at any given time. I, I would say you might be admitted directly into the psychiatric emergency room if we had beds. The psychiatric emergency room is unique. We have seven beds on the unit. It is a self-contained unit located at the back of the emergency department in Providence. Um, we work um, in partnership with the physicians and the nurses and all of the staff um, in the ER to support patients across both zones in the hospital. Um, and that's generally the process for coming in. So a couple of times during that, you mentioned if there's beds, if there's space, is that it sounds like that's a perpetual problem. Right now, and I, I didn't pull the data uh, for this conversation, I apologize, but right now um, we're seeing as many, often we are seeing during the day, as many patients being served in the ER for behavioral health needs as we are seeing in the psych ER. So, you know, seven to seven beds on the unit full, and then seven plus or more beds full in the emergency room. Uh, so that means we're crossing both, both zones to support staff across so we're very full. Maybe the short answer is we're extremely full. I believe that the other emergency rooms are also experiencing this kind of um, volume at this time. Okay. Um, and Steve, feel free to jump into the conversation at, at any point here. Um, I feel like we've we've all been taught like in this culture, like if you have an emergency, go to the emergency room. If you're having a health crisis, go to the emergency room. Is is that the best place to go if you're having a mental health crisis? I think one of the reasons we're having a conversation about crisis now is the answer is sometimes, maybe not always. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> to be completely <laughs> frank, I think some of the crises that we see could be very um, well met um, at a community outpatient level 
with excellent case management and robust community resources. Um, they might be situational and they might be short term. And so that that is the ballywick of the crisis now process to try to to redirect folks to uh, a less medical model type of care that will more quickly meet their needs and get them right back into the community where they have a higher quality of life. Yeah, and Anne, this is Steve. If I if I can just and add to that, the answer to your question is the emergency room, the most appropriate place for people in a in a behavioral health crisis to be served is is probably not by and large. Um, unfortunately, right now our system is set up that the emergency rooms are the default response uh, when there aren't these lower levels of care that can intercede. Uh, at, a, at an earlier point to try and assess the situation, resolve the crisis situation uh, if possible, and if not, then determine what is the next level of care that is the most responsive and appropriate for that individual. Um, so our emergency rooms uh, have become a default uh, and our correctional system at times has become the default to individuals in a behavioral health crisis. Steve, please talk more about that. Like the correctional system is the default. How did that happen and how does that affect people? Um, I think, you know, the the foundation to this conversation is really the health of our community-based uh, behavioral health system. Um, when individuals don't have access to the appropriate uh, services and supports that they need to be able to have their health conditions met, uh, and then they go into a crisis. Our responses have traditionally been uh, someone sees someone in crisis in the community, they know how to call 911, they make that phone call, and then a, uh, a law enforcement or an EMT response uh, is what comes to that person in their particular uh, place in the community. Um, and that's the way it's been for, uh, for at least 30 years that I've been here. We've done different things to try and divert people out of that response and out of the ERs and out of the um, correctional system. We've set up uh, mental health courts. We've set up uh, assertive community treatment teams to go out and meet people in the, in the community. We have set up the Providence Psychiatric Emergency Room. I mean, when we, if you wanna talk about like the last sort of what you described at the top of the show, evolution of our behavioral health crisis system, I think you could go back to uh, when API was redesigned and the new API was constructed. And along with that came the evolution of the Providence Psyche R, which was supposed to be the single point of entry where um, someone in a psychiatric crisis could be taken. They, the, the staff at the psychiatric ER were trained to deal with behavioral health crises, and they would try and resolve the situation in less than 24 hours if they could. Uh, as Summer pointed out, that's very limited beds for a statewide system. Um, but that was, the, that was our evolution. 
and I think, and that's the system that has been in set in place uh, for the last 20 some odd years. Um, I think now we're at a place, and again, back in you know early 2019, maybe 2018, the emergency rooms started to see more and more people in behavioral health crises. Uh, the psychiatric emergency room was seeing the same volume and could only triage so many. So, you know, when that bottlenecks, you go to emergency rooms. When that bottlenecks, you end up in correctional settings. And none of those are the appropriate places for someone who's got a, a health condition, a, a, a mental health crisis. Which brings us appropriately to one of the main topics that we're talking about today is, okay, if this isn't working, if we have a bottleneck, if this is having a negative effect on people who are working in emergency room settings as well, um, what's what's the new plan? Um, and and Mental Health Trust is calling it Crisis Now. If you Can you tell us a little bit about what that model is? Yeah. I'd be happy to, Anne. I'd like to maybe talk about it in terms of a framework. Mm -hmm, um, definitely. And and it's a framework that has really sort of, uh, you know, evolved over the last several years. Arizona, which is one of the states, Maricopa County is one of the states that the, the trust and our partners have really looked at to transform Alaska's behavioral health crisis uh, care system. And and what we're seeing is that, that the best practice right now, the evolution, is where you have a robust um, call center uh, where individuals in a crisis or family members who think their individual or their family member or friend is in a crisis can call. Uh, that call can be triaged by people trained uh, in the mental health field. Uh, they can try and resolve that, that, that crisis on the phone. Um, and in, in lo other locales, you know, those call, a lot of those calls are resolved on the phone. Um, if the call can't be resolved on the phone, then they deploy what is called mobile crisis response teams or mobile crisis teams. A clinician and a peer, ideally, that's the model, um, goes to the individual in the community, uh, assesses the situation, uh, tries to resolve the situation in the community and get that person connected to the resources and supports they need. Um, and you don't have a, a, a default law, law enforcement or EMT response. Um, and then the other piece to that is if someone, if the, the call center or the mobile crisis team can't resolve the situation, that they have then have a place to take Steve to. Uh, a 23-hour crisis, stable, uh, crisis stabilization center, much like the PRAVR, uh, but with a little bit different sort of philosophical approach to the crisis. It's not going to be a medical model approach. You're going to have people who are trained um, in mental health. You're going to have people who are medically trained in case someone has a physical health care need. Um, and you're also going to have peers in the setting. Um, and, you know, if you're if you're gathering, peers is a pretty important part to this this model um, because they have that lived experience and they can help identify with the person in crisis to help them feel comfortable as they're they're moving through this this period of time in their life. Um, and so uh, you really have these lower levels of care. 
uh, that can intervene earlier and then if needed assess the situation and move someone up to a more intensive more acute uh, and if you want to think about it from a dollar's uh, perspective, um, the, the higher up in level of care you go, obviously the cost of care is going to increase. Um, so that is sort of the, the framework that we're using. Um, and, you know, it's called Crisis Now, but those are the components of the framework that we're working with our partners to try and implement in Alaska. Okay. Um we are going to head into a quick break, and then I would love to delve into more of those aspects. I'd love to talk more about, you kept mentioning not a medical model approach and in the community, and I'd like to talk more about what that means and why. Um, for those of you out there listening, our phones are still down, but you can send us emails to talk at alaskapublic.org. That's again, talk at alaskapublic.org, and we will be back in a moment. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Alaska's unique approach to mental health funding is improving the lives of Alaskans who experience behavioral health conditions and developmental disabilities. The Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority has a responsibility to generate revenue from its one million acres of land and the resources they contain. The trust uses this revenue to help fund statewide programs and initiatives that positively impact trust beneficiaries. To learn more, visit alaskamentalhealthtrust.org. This message sponsored by the Alaska Mental Health Trust. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska, where we're discussing Alaska's evolving mental health crisis response system. Our guests today are Steve Williams with the Mental Health Trust and Summer LaFay with the Providence Psych ER. Um, and again, phone lines are down, but we are taking emails. Talk at alaskapublic.org. Share your experiences and ask your questions. So before we took that quick break, we were talking about the Crisis Now framework. Um, and one of the things that that I've heard mentioned a lot of times when talking about this framework is that you're keeping people in the community. Um, Summer, can you talk a little bit about from your personal experiences working a lot with people with people in the community? Like why is it important to to do that? What does that mean to keep people in the community? Well, I think the for me, one of the most important things is people's quality of life um, is often much higher in the community. I think that's one of the reasons Steve mentioned deinstitutionalization, downsizing API, having a quality of life, um, having access to social opportunities, um, having a robust um, life experience is most, most likely met in the community. So I think I, just to add to what Steve said, I think we keep saying a lower level of care, but really what we mean is a more person-centered level of care, a more individualized level of care where we are doing the least restrictive interventions to, to increase people's quality of life 
And I see, I love the framework and I love the way you talked about it, Steve, because I think a lot of folks as we bring them along in this narrative, don't, don't, can't visualize what, what's going on here with this crisis system. And I see it as a natural evolution of good person-centered mental health care and care for people with vulnerabilities right where they're at, as close to where they live as, as possible um, in the community. And from my understanding in spending time with like some of the peers who are working in in like the mobile crisis teams and and other peers who are working in substance um, substance misuse recovery treatment programs, like when we talk about mental health treatment, it's not just talking about like sitting on a couch and talking to a therapist. It's so much more than that. And I was wondering if you could maybe like help people envision what that means to have person-centered care, person-centered mental health care? Well, I can I can say from my work with the, the team at Providence that's working with the trust to explore what 23-hour stabilization looks like, that in in my in my definition of it, it means that you're starting where the person is and you know who the person is, you see the person, and you're doing what you can based on their needs to ease their way, given what they're presenting to you at the moment. Uh, I think that that's very different than kind of a triage approach in, in a medical model where it's problem-focused mm. um, and not, not individually focused. And can I, can I just add something there real quick? Totally. Yeah, uh, in regards to the, the the value and the importance of peers uh, in kind of helping someone move through and then resolve their, their crisis and then move down a path of recovery, it's no different than um, uh, I think of folks that have gone through, been diagnosed with cancer and then have gone through a cancer treatment. And think about all of the support groups and the individuals who have had that similar experience being able to wrap around that person as they're walking through that experience for the first time. We're talking about the same thing when it comes to mental health and addiction. We're talking about bringing people who have been in that place, who have uh, had their crisis resolved, who have entered a path of recovery, and then are, are there to be able to help someone else move down that same path. Peers play a really important role. Um, it sounds like it sounds like one of your partners in in creating this new framework and and shifting up the system is definitely working with organizations who are very peer focused and, and have peers leading the way. Who else is part of this collaborative process of creating this new framework? Yeah, that's there are a number of different partners uh, that the trust and the Department of Health and Social Services and the tribal health system are engaged with. Um, you know, at the state level, it's not just the Department of Health and Social Services that is a partner in this. It's the Department of Corrections and the Department of Public Safety. Uh, both of those departments recognize that uh, people in behavioral health crisis that they're responding to, they're not able to get them to the place that they need to be uh, to have that crisis addressed and resolved. Um, other partners include, you mentioned um, 
you know, folks with a really strong peer focus, you know, Alaska Behavioral Health, uh, Jammy Wellness and Health down in Juneau are other two big organizations and partners in this. Um, and then at the local levels, we've engaged, you know, we've engaged with the Anchorage Police Department, with the Fire Department, the Fairbanks um, Police Fire Department and Dispatch uh, System is engaged in this. Uh, as well as folks out in the valley, Set Free and, and the Wasilla and Palmer uh, Police Departments out there, uh, and a key funding partner, the Matsu Health Foundation. Um, so, you know, I share the, the diversity there because um, there is no single entity that can transform the system. It takes uh, strong partnerships at all levels uh, and um, to be able to transform the system over time and actually get the outcomes that we want to achieve um, for these individuals um, in crisis. And so you mentioned that you've been working with law enforcement agencies across the state mm-hmm. on this. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about like what that partnership looks like and how responsive different agencies have been to this idea of shifting? Um, well, I'm going to maybe take a little step back, uh, Anne, because the trust has been engaged in law enforcement and trying to get them the tools and the skills uh, to be able to address someone in a crisis on the scene uh, since the early 2000s, the crisis intervention team model, where there's a 40-hour training that uh, is provided to law enforcement so that they just sort of have a mental health 101 they can recognize someone in a crisis. And then they also have a sense of what are the resources in the community that they could divert someone to. Um, so from the, you know, for the last 20 years, our state uh, in partnership with the law enforcement has really been engaged in recognizing that um, even though they may be the entity that responds, uh, they aren't the entity that is gonna be able to resolve the crisis. And how can we help them get the person to the appropriate place. The way this is that our system is transforming now is looking at and recognizing that sometimes just the presence of someone in a uniform, the presence of a police car, the presence presence of an ambulance with lights flashing can escalate the situation unintentionally and not achieve the outcome that we want. And that's why these mobile crisis response teams are so important because you now have a trained mental health clinician, someone with lived experience showing up in a, uh, in a visually non-threatening way and really trying to work with the person to assess what is the best intervention that uh, is gonna address their needs. Law enforcement has always recognized that they, aren't, they are not the best response, but just like the emergency room, Those are our default uh, 24-hour, 365-day-a-year response systems when uh, someone is in crisis. And we're trying to change that for a behavioral health crisis. And Summer, I saw you nodding a lot while Steve was talking. Do you have have anything to add to that? I, I think it's really important to understand that all the way through the crisis response process, what in my my thinking is we're trying to reframe the care approach we're trying to do like steve was mentioning decrease like the visual environmental signs that 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 may exacerbate the crisis or might 
be perceived as threatening to someone who is in distress. The, the, the definition of being in distress is that things around me are upsetting me for mm. multiple reasons. And there might be certain multiple things that need to be addressed, but in the approach, we are decreasing that and we are increasing the comfort available in the environment. Again, we're coming to you. You can call us and we will come to you. If that's not enough, you can come in and you're gonna be met by somebody that knows what you're going through. That's one of the beauties of the Crisis Now um, model that um, Steve mentioned in Arizona. They start with peers. They start with peers. And at the same time, they simultaneously provide the kind of supports clinically and medically so that they don't miss something that might need to be addressed in a, in a more medical in a more medical way. So they're again, wrapping that whole person, right? There's food, there's access to comfort immediately if you, if you enter into that environment. And so I just think it's really important as back to what I started with is we're reframing the approach for the crisis intervention. And that's a heavy lift because we've been doing it this way um, with many supports such as the community um, the CIT officer training that Steve was mentioning, but this is a this is a next level um, evolution in my mind. And it seems like it's an evolution that's really integrating all these different elements of, of mental health support systems. Is that is that accurate? It is to Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we do have an email. Um, Someone wrote in and said, hi, listening to your last discussion, um, and it's basically saying we we're talking about kind of how we you the trust started talking about all of these issues in 2018 and well before um, the person asks, since Alaska legalized marijuana in 2016, do you see any correlation in increased issues due to that legal change? The person says they're asking because they have a younger relative who recently experienced cannabis induced psychosis. Um, and it required a mental health intervention. Uh, I'm guessing that one's for me. I can say that we, I do not have data that we've been taking on this, but we are very aware and are experiencing an increase in volume in cannabis, um, cannabis in, um, induced psychosis. Um, particularly with some of the very, very strong and potent cannabis that's out there being consumed. Um, and I, I definitely see that that is an, um, something that we will be addressing more and more in the future. Okay. Is And it sounds like that is adding an additional strain onto an already strained um, mental health and healthcare system. Anything that adds um, increases volume at this time is adding more more pressure to the system. And in emergency rooms and crisis response um, processes are used to pressure, but there's a lot of variables right now that are increasing the pressure. But definitely, um, um, we do are seeing an increase in cannabis-related psychosis. Okay, I think. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the pressures on the healthcare system right now um, and how the ongoing pandemic is affecting all healthcare workers, including behavioral health 
care workers. Um, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and talk about what, the effect of all these stressors. Well, I guess I just want to qualify that by saying I don't consider myself an expert. Mm -hmm. My lived experience in the emergency care system is began in August. Mm. But I, I guess I'll say to start with, I'm incredibly honored to work with the people in the emergency care department and at Providence. Um, these folks have been going very, very hard um, for a very long time, answering the needs of the community during the public health crisis that we're experiencing. And in during the public health crisis, our behavioral health, I, I venture to hypothesize our behavioral health needs have increased, not only for people that were already vulnerable before or became vulnerable during the crisis, but for people that may not have experienced those vulnerabilities um, personally until this long period of isolation and um, a long period of the things that we've all had to accommodate and change in our life um, due to COVID-19. Um, so what happens is we have workforce shortages. Um, we have unprecedented turnover when the amazing nurses and physicians uh, are, are tired and need a break. Um, also, there's a lot of demand um, for, um, for nursing particularly, but always for physicians in Alaska. And so there are people moving. There's lots of moving parts. We have lots of travelers coming into state and lots of people leaving state to go work in areas where they're having critical workforce shortages. Um, that makes for a really dynamic, changing environment in the emergency department, which adds to the stress and pressure. In addition, people are following COVID protocols, um, which change pretty rapidly and are serious deal breakers in an emergency room where people can be so vulnerable. And so really unique pressures. I'm not sure I'm capturing all of it, but uh, it's been an interesting experience to come into this come into this role during this time. And I'd love to tell you that the pressure is easing up, but it's not quite like that yet. Um, hopefully in the next six to eight months, we'll see some, some more relief. And I think then what we'll see is kind of the leftover fatigue um, in behavioral health uh, with our caregivers, um, with our direct service personnel who have been working so hard during the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And if I could just add a, to, a little bit to that, I think that the, um, the pressures on the healthcare system and the pressures on our community members that have maybe uh, in some cases exacerbated folks and maybe pushed them into some sort of behavioral health crisis uh, certainly exists. But I think it's also worth um, acknowledging that our, our healthcare system, our behavioral health care system uh, has been really doing and doing a, a good job of trying to adapt to be able to provide access to care uh, in the in the most responsive way possible, and you know our behavioral health system made did a major major adaptation to the use of telehealth uh, at the beginning of all of this. And you know, talk about evolution, talk about transformation that was kind of forced on the system. They adapted, 
um, that didn't resolve all the all of the uh, workforce issues or the issues for people in need of care, but it, it certainly needs to be recognized because without it, uh, I think we would be in a in a in a far worse place. Um, and then I would also just add that um, the dedication of the healthcare workforce. Uh, and some are used the term direct service professional. Um, we think about nurses, we think about doctors, we think about mental health clinicians, we think about our first responders, but there are many people in our community that um, are able to live in our community because they have individuals that either come into their home or live in their home to provide them services and support so that they can be in the community. And that is often a, a element of the workforce that isn't captured, uh, I don't think so, as, as vibrantly as it should be uh, when we talk about the stresses on the workforce. Um, these are folks that are providing 24-hour care, uh, and individuals are reliant on that care so that they can live in their homes. Um, and in some cases, organizations, in terms of having to adapt, have now sort of shifted to, you know, mid-level or senior management level uh, staff going in and providing 24-hour care when needed because individuals are out on maybe some sort of uh, COVID protocol or something else has happened. Um, so, I just wanted to acknowledge the the ways that the healthcare system uh, as a whole has adapted uh, in these very uh, challenging times. Thank you both for that. Um, I appreciate you highlighting that. We are going to take one last quick break, and then we will be back with the end of our conversation around the evolving mental health system in Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Most people who received a COVID vaccine still have great protection against hospitalization and death. However, if you're 16 and older and it's been six months since your last Pfizer or Moderna dose, or two months since your Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you are now eligible for a booster. Learn more at covidvax.alaska.gov or call the Alaska COVID Helpline at 907-646-3322. This message sponsored by Department of Health and Social Services. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. As a reminder, we are not taking calls today, but we are taking emails at talk at alaskapublic.org. Um, we talk a lot about this new framework. I'd love to talk a bit about kind of the practicalities behind it um, in terms of how is it being funded and when can we see these new services really coming online? Um, so I guess those questions are for you, Steve. How are you funding things like mobile crisis teams or um, the new stabilization centers? Sure. The, we're, the long-term sustainability plan for the funding of this transformed system is going to have to be from multiple sources. It's going to have to come through from state funding. Uh, currently, the 1115 Behavioral Health Waiver provides funding through Medicaid for some of these services. Uh, it's going to have to come, funding is going to have to come from uh, private insurance when that can be billed. 
Uh, it's going to come have to come from uh, uh, unrestricted grant funding, whether that's from the state or whether that's from the trust or other funding partners uh, and also local governments. Uh, I think a key word that could describe that, and we often use it, is a braided funding approach uh, to sustaining the, the system. Uh, that is the long-term uh, plan for transforming the system. And I think the, the two words that I just used, long-term, is something that we all need to keep uh, in the forefront of our minds, because this is not something that is going to happen overnight major system transitions or transformations don't happen overnight. And we can point to uh, successful transformations that we're all proud of, but it took several years to get to that place. Uh, and the trust is really engaged and committed to keeping that forward momentum to transforming the system. Uh, we're focused right now in Anchorage, uh, the Matsu Valley and Fairbanks uh, but it, this transformation is also happening and we're engaged with partners down in Juneau. And we're also engaged with partners off the road system uh, who are starting to think about uh, this sort of uh, recovery oriented um, approach uh, in Kotzebue, in Nome, in Ketchikan. Um, so it's going to be a, a, a sustained effort. It's gonna take time. Uh, but we are seeing some milestones of the efforts um, being implemented now. Fairbanks has an operating mobile crisis team. Um, they've been operating 24-7 uh, since November. They've started generating some outcomes uh, um, from data for the last couple of months. And if you don't mind, I'll just share that um, in that time, they've received a total of 78 calls, uh, they have responded, 59% uh, of those calls are responded just by the mobile crisis team themselves. No other uh, law enforcement or EMT was necessary. So it frees up those um, other resources to respond to other calls. Up, absolutely. And um, they're able to res resolve those situations uh, the majority of the time. So uh, freeing up the resources for law enforcement and EMT to be able to perform the public safety or emergency medical response duties that uh, we all sort of traditionally think of them responding to is absolutely important. And and there's also um, a writer, a, a listener, I suppose, a listener just wrote in also mentioning that there's a mobile crisis team here in Anchorage that consists of yeah two clinicians and then firefighters, and they're in service seven days a week from 10 to eight. So yes, also also in Anchorage. Um, what about, I mean, so mobile crisis teams in urban areas make sense. What about mm -hmm. in rural areas? Those are the conversations that we are having with our rural rural partners. I mean, the trust does not have the answer to that. And in fact, I think it might, um, if we tried to develop the, the correct answer, we probably wouldn't hit the target the way we would want to. Um, it really is gonna be the engagement with the rural partner, the region to identify what assets they have, uh, what gaps they have and how to uh, look at their the system in a rural location uh, to be able to better respond and transform that system. All right. And we have about 
two minutes left. I'd love to hear where we are with the stable, the 23-hour stabilization centers and then the somewhat longer-term stabilization centers. Do those exist, and how will those come into being if not? I'll, I'll start real quick. Um, you know, I think in Anchorage, and we shouldn't overlook the, the Providence Psychiatric Emergency Room. I mean, that is a... It is not, that is the sort of hospital medical approach, but it's, it's uh, certainly a huge asset and value to someone in crisis or a family in crisis. Um, but we are now working with Providence and South Central Foundation and partners in other communities to look at how the 23-hour uh, stabilization services are uh, implemented and operated in Phoenix and in other locations so that people can learn from those experiences and then be able to develop a, a facility plan, a operational plan, and a long-term funding, uh, long funding plan so that the services can be provided. We're not there yet, but we are certainly on our way to getting there. And um, we have some really good partners that are vested in trying to make this a reality. And if folks want to hear more about this or read more about this or find out about um, what changes are coming along the line, what potential legislative changes would have to happen, how can they get more information? I would direct them to the uh, the trust homepage, which is the Alaska Mental Health, AlaskaMentalHealthTrust.org. And there's a banner that runs across our homepage that talks about uh, our work on behavioral health crisis continuum of care. And there's a page that is dedicated to this work that we're doing with our partners uh, to make this transformation happen. Well, thank you both very, very much for your time um, and for everyone who wrote in today. We've been talking about mental health crisis response in Alaska with Steve Williams from the Mental Health Trust and Summer LaFay from Providence Healthcare. Um, thank you for all the listeners. Thank you to our audio engineer, Tobin Shelby, and producer, Adeline Baxter. I'm Ann Hillman. Remember, if you need to talk to someone right now, you can call the Caroline Alaska at 877-266-HELP. That's 877-266-4300. Five, seven. Thank you all very much for joining us. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.